Isaiah? Cool. Okay, well, if you got your Bibles with you, let's open up. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 11. We'll back up just a little bit um, and take a look at uh, uh, some of the scriptures we talked a little bit about last time in regard to the kingdom, uh, leading us into the second half of chapter 11. Now, as we finish up, we're going to do chapter 11, chapter 12. Uh, We may even try to get chapter 13. We'll see. Jackie gabs too much. But as we go through it, chapter 12 ends the first division. The first division of the book of Isaiah, remember the Lord is speaking primarily to Israel and Judah. Israel and Judah had divided. Solomon had had died. His son took over and did exactly what Solomon was afraid would take place. And the whole kingdom comes down. Northern kingdom, ten tribes. Southern kingdom, two tribes. But remember... We looked in the scripture, and scripture tells us that those who were focused on the Lord and wanting to draw near to him went south, and those others who were wanting to run headlong into rebellion went north. So in each kingdom, you need to realize you have representatives of all 12 tribes. There's no such thing, and we'll see it today as we go on into chapter 13 if we get that far, there's no such thing as the 10 lost tribes. God knows who they are, where they are, and he brought them all back into the land. We'll see that as we go on. So chapter 12 is going to end that. When we get to chapter 13 and 14, God's going to turn his view toward Babylon. You know what's cool about that? Isaiah writes chapter 13 and 14 100 years before Babylon existed. Babylon wasn't a kingdom. It was a little city uh, that that was a little quiet place, you know, off in the middle of nowhere. The, The kingdom that was ruling at the time was the Assyrian kingdom. Remember we talked about that? They ruled for 700 years. Babylon is going to conquer Assyria and take over. And as we study Daniel, you'll remember the statue of Daniel, the kingdoms that arose and fell uh, during the, the time Israel was in the land. So we'll continue to see that as we go through. But let's take a look. Chapter 11, we'll start there at verse 6. And we're touching again on the millennial kingdom, okay? This is the literal rule and reign of Jesus Christ. And as you read this, you'll recognize that there's no reason to allegorize these scriptures. You can take them just like they're read, just like we see them. As we look at them, we're going to recognize that something has changed on earth. And that which the scripture tells us has changed is the curse has been lifted. Here's what he said. Uh, 11 verse 6. And the wolf will shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. What he's talking about is that time, literal fulfillment, when Jesus Christ will sit on the throne of David. When Gabriel stood before Jesus' mother Mary and was telling her that the Holy Spirit had come upon her and that she was going to give birth to the Messiah, he said, he will sit on David's throne. He didn't sit on David's throne. He came, he went to the cross, he died, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. 
When will he sit on David's throne? Well, the scripture tells us we study through Revelation. We see the end of the tribulation period come. The, the, the exaltation is Jesus Christ returns with his church as he comes back. And as he goes to battle against Antichrist, he's going to wipe out the, the armies there in the battle of Armageddon. He's going to judge the nations. Matthew chapter 25 tells us. Doesn't Matthew 25 tell us how he's going to do it? He said, inasmuch as you did it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Remember? I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was in prison and you visited me. And they said, Lord, when did we do these things? Jesus said, when you did them to the least of these, my brethren. Who's he talking about? Who's his brethren? In, in context of the scripture, he's talking about the nation of Israel and the tribulation saints. Those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ during that time. That will be the judgment of the nations. It's going to take place in the, in the valley of Jehoshaphat, the judgment of the nations. When we were in Israel, we had an opportunity to walk through. It's a pretty small valley. But nonetheless, that's where the, the tradition, I should say anyway, is that the judgment will take place. And then the millennial reign of Christ. The millennial reign of Christ will be for a thousand literal years. Satan will be bound in chains, not loosed. And the Bible goes on to tell us, that if someone died at 100 years old, they would say a baby died. So you're going to see lifespans return back to the way it was at the Garden of Eden. You're going to experience the way the Garden of Eden was on earth. Now, you and I, as his church, as believers in Christ, we will have already become the bride of Christ. We will already be uh, made as he is, so, so we will know even as he knows us, We're going to be fulfilling whatever our role for eternity is, but we'll be there. No longer with a worry or concern about falling into sin or blowing it or messing up. Because from that point forward, we're always going to be with Jesus. From the time the 24 elders uh, spend with him from Revelation chapter 5 on, we're always in the presence of Jesus Christ. So as we look at that, this is what the earth is going to be like. At the curse, there was no death. You need to understand, no death on the planet prior to sin. For when sin came, then death came. There is no death prior to sin. The the animals didn't eat each other. There wasn't the same thing we see in the wild kingdom today. And when Jesus rules and reigns, the Bible tells us the earth is going to go back to that place. Back to being that way. That's the excitement or the thrill of the kingdom for the nation of Israel. They're excited. They finally have the the one and only king they'll ever need. Didn't God always want to be their king? But they didn't always want him as king, right? They rejected God from ruling over them and said we want regular earthly kings. And now they look forward to a Messiah that will one day come and rule. You go to Israel today, they're still looking for their Messiah the Bible tells in the book of Zechariah that they will look on Jesus as one looks at, at their only son. They're going to recognize the nail prints in his hands. What Zechariah says, that was before crucifixion even existed. They'll look upon him whom they have pierced and they'll mourn as one mourns for their only son. They're going to recognize Jesus as their Messiah. He will rule and reign And this is what Isaiah is talking about. This is how the earth will be during that time. And then he points, he turns from this in verse 10, and he looks toward Messiah. Okay, I'm talking about Messiah's kingdom. Let's talk about Messiah. 
And in that day, there will be a root of Jesse. Now, does everybody know who Jesse is, right? Jesse is David's dad. King David's dad is Jesse. There will be a root from Jesse who will stand as a banner to the people. What's he saying? This root of Jesse is going to put up this banner and he's going to call all the people to himself. Remember what Jesus said as he was talking to Nicodemus at night? And he said, unless the Son of Man is lifted up, but if the Son or when the Son of Man is lifted up, I will draw all people unto myself. He becomes that banner, the banner of salvation. He's going to draw the nation of Israel and he's going to draw all who seek salvation toward him. For in him there is salvation by no other name except the name of Jesus. So he will stand as a banner to the people for the Gentiles shall seek him. That's Isaiah writing in about somewhere in the 700 B.C. area. The Gentiles will seek him. Still do. Still do. Seeking that Messiah, the Mashiach, the root of Jesse. Now, in your in an understanding of a plant, where does a plant have its sustenance, its life? It's in the root. Kill the root, plant's dead. So the root of Jesse, we, we read in, in uh, chapter 11, verse 1, that there will come forth from the stem of Jesse a branch. That branch, Nazir, we talked about it before, Nazir. It's a, from which you get the phrase Nazarene. When the scripture said in the book of Matthew that he shall be called the Nazarene according to the scriptures, that's the scripture is pointing to. The branch. That's what Nazarene means. The branch. So this is pointing to Jesus Christ and the fact that as he lifts up this banner, the banner of salvation, not only will he draw the nation of Israel, for the nation of Israel, folks, is going to be saved the same way everyone else is. They don't get, there's not a special dispensation for the nation of Israel that they don't have to receive their Messiah. They have to, those who died prior to Jesus Christ were looking toward him in faith, weren't they? Isn't that what the Bible says about Abraham? Abraham believed God, it was accounted unto him for righteous, for he looked for a city whose maker and builder was God. A city that had foundations. He was looking for more than what was here and the promised child. Abraham, from your seed, did he say seeds or seed? Seed, singular. From your seed, Capital S, what's he talking about? Messiah is coming through your lineage, Abraham. I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. So the Old Testament patriarchs looked forward in hope to the promised Messiah, the promise given in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. And those after Jesus, we look back toward the cross. But we all enter into salvation the same way. For without faith, it's impossible to please God. You couldn't please God by how many sacrifices you gave. Those sacrifices, the book of Hebrews tells us, painted a picture that God was an illustration that the Lord was laying out for us. This is what you need to understand to have a relationship with me, to know me in a greater degree. So as we look, Jesus is going to draw all people to himself. In verse 11, And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time, to recover the remnant, his people who are left. Now, you really need to listen. He's going to recover them a second time. 
What was the first time? The first time is after the Babylonian captivity. You had the northern kingdom go to Assyria. Southern kingdom went to Babylon. Seventy years of captivity. At the end of 70 years of captivity, God brought them back into the land, right? Yeah, they came back. They rebuilt the temple. They went through all that. Ultimately, they came under the control of Rome. And during the rule of Rome, they ceased to be a nation altogether. So when the scripture says he will call them a second time, what's he talking about? Folks, I believe that this scripture is laying out for us what we saw fulfilled on March 14th, or I'm sorry, May 14th, 1948. What we saw when the nation of Israel became a nation again, after nearly 2,000 years of not existing And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left. Look where he takes them from. From Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel. I don't know if there's a better way to describe what took place in 1948 than that. At the end, we come to the end of the war. At the end of the war, there was this strong outpouring of emotion from the world of what had taken place in the Holocaust. And so they moved forward to provide for them a nation. By the way, at the time that they provided them a nation, nobody wanted the land. It's not like they took land that, that people were thrilled about. At the time, it was all swamp and desert, had very little value. But the Bible said that the, that the desert would bloom. And that's what took place. As soon as Israel, once again, as soon as the nation came back into the land, God began once again to move uh, as a part of that nation. They will assemble the outcasts. Folks, I don't, I don't know that there has ever been a people persecuted like the jew i don't care where you go you can go to russia today jews are persecuted they were persecuted in ethiopia remember when the ethiopian jews were flying from ethiopia trying to get a flight out from the persecution to come to israel that just happened i don't know maybe now it's 15 or 20 years ago but it was a while ago recent history they're flying in today by the Plain loads, Russian Jews are coming out of Russia. In fact, it's it's an issue in Israel because they're having a hard time finding places to put them. But you know, all they have to do is prove that they're Jewish and they're welcome. Open arms, come home, come back, come to the land. So we see the land flourishing. And the Lord said, I will set out my hand the second time and bring them all back. First time after Babylon, the second time I believe he's talking about May 14, 1948. Look what he says. I will gather together the dispersed of Judah. That was the southern kingdom, right? The dispersed of Judah. From where? The four corners of the earth. North, south, east, west. Folks, what we were studying in the first 12 chapters is a captivity that's going to take place to the north. And that's it. And they'll be able to come back south to the land. But that's, that's gone. That, he's saying from the whole world, from everywhere, they're going to be dispersed every place, which took place in 70 AD when Titus Vespasian destroyed the, the city of Jerusalem, plowed it underfoot, 
and sent the Jews scurrying everywhere. And that was it. That was the end of a nation until 1948. And God moved until God began to call once again his people home. Well, look what it says in verse 13. The envy of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Now remember, Ephraim was a prominent tribe in the northern kingdom, commonly used to describe Israel. The, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, would be Ephraim. The southern kingdom would be Judah. So basically he says, look, this, they're not going to fight anymore. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah will not harass Ephraim. Oh, the two kingdoms are going to have peace. One of the things that, that will jump out and grab you if you ever get an opportunity to go to Israel today is those folks know how to stand together, let me tell you. I sat on the street one time, took my guitar, a friend of mine had a djembe. We sat down on the street, just started playing. Nobody was around at the time. Ended up being a street fair there and ended up filling up with a lot of people. And when they saw us playing, I had a kids, some kids from Israel, Jewish kids, uh, two guys that were in the military, shaved, buzz cut head, and two guys with dreadlocks three quarters of the way down their back. Both of them Israeli citizens, Jewish kids, come over to hear me play guitar. We sat down and talked, and there was peace, even though just my experience in the States, that was two sharply contrasted people groups. Put a Marine together with a bunch of uh, uh, kids with dreadlocks, and it just, there was not going to be a mesh. But in Israel, there was. Judah is not going to harass Ephraim. Ephraim's not going to be envious of Judah. There's going to be that peace. Why is there going to be that peace? Do you realize they're so small all the way around them at any moment, any enemy could come against them and literally nearly wipe them out. So you can't play games with each other. You stand together. Seems to be what the Bible's indicating, what Isaiah is talking about. Verse 14 Well, they shall fly down upon the shoulder of the Philistines toward the west. Together they will plunder the people of the east. They will lay their hand on Edom and Moab and the people of Ammon, and they shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and his mighty wind he will shake his fist over the river, strike it in the seven streams, and make men cross over dry shod. God's making a highway. What highway is he making? He's drying up the river Euphrates. You know the book of Revelation says that the way the 200 million man army from the east is going to march against the Antichrist, they're going to come down through a highway because the river Euphrates is going to dry up. This is what Isaiah is talking about. God's going to dry up the river Euphrates. This army, it's spoken of in The book of Revelation, this is events that take place during the tribulation period with the nation of Israel. And it says, there will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria as it was for Israel in the day that he came up from the land of Egypt. So he's saying, listen, just like they crossed the Red Sea on dry land, they're going to be able to come down this highway that used to be the Euphrates River that God dries up. It's, it's somewhat interesting today, even in a natural sense, that the river Euphrates has the nations above the river Euphrates have the ability to cut off all the water flowing. 
It's got dams all the way up and down it. They can cut it off at any time. Is that what it's talking about? Maybe, maybe it is going to be something natural or some type of disaster that the Lord brings. But ultimately, the book of Revelation tells us this is going to take place. And this is what he's talking about. So in chapter 11, as we look at what he's saying, he sees Messiah. He sees the promised Messiah going to come. He talks about the fact he's going to rule and reign as a king forever and ever, looking at the millennial reign. That the nation of Israel is going to be scattered to the four corners of the earth, but God's going to bring them back, reestablish them, and supernaturally, he's going to care for them. Well, you have to put your head in the sand not to see that today. you got to put your head in the sand and say, no, it's not happening. Because if you just did a study of the different wars that have taken place around Israel in recent history, it's, a, it's a, not a marvel to their military. There's no reason why they should have won. There's no reason why they should have been able in the six-day war to, to accomplish what they did in six days. In the, the war at Yom Kippur, they were totally caught by surprise and overrun. They could have been ob- ob- obliterated that day. And for some reason, all the enemies that charged on Yom Kippur stopped. And Israel was able to regain her balance and begin to fight to repel her enemies. So... These things over and over and over again, God has a plan for the nation of Israel. The scripture declares to us, doesn't it, that all of Israel will be saved? What does that mean? If I was born a Jew, I'm automatically saved? I got a special dispensation? No. The Bible very clearly says, not everyone who calls himself Israel is of Israel. What does Israel mean? Governed by God. Who is Israel? Israel are those not who draw near to the Lord with their lips, but with their hearts that's what the scripture declares my people draw near to me with their lips but their hearts are far from me it would be better for them to circumcise the foreskin of their hearts rather than the circumcision of the covenant that they thought saved they're saved by faith putting their faith and trust in almighty god and as they do that whoever calls on the name of the lord jesus christ mashiach nagid the messiah the king will be saved that's what the bible says that's what the bible indicates so that's what they're laying out for us in chapter 11 well when we come to chapter 12 then then isaiah writes a song we got any songwriters in the crew i know we got a couple so we hear isaiah he's kind of blown away by what god shared with him by what god has laid out for him and he's going to write a psalm and this is his psalm in chapter 12 oh lord Or in that day, you will say, O Lord, I will praise you. Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. I think sometimes we lose sight of the way that God sees sin. Jonathan Edwards once preached a message called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You ever get a chance to read it, you should check it out. The, the concept that we think God just lightly looks at sin like it's no big deal. It's foreign to Scripture. Here Isaiah says, Lord, you were angry, but you turned away and you comfort me. What is the secret when God is angry towards sin? The Scripture indicates all throughout the Word of God. All i got to do is turn to Him and repent, confess, and receive forgiveness of sins. That was all that was required in the sin offerings that we've been studying on Wednesday. In the trespass offering, what did they have to do? Just confess their sin. Just confess. 
And so here Isaiah is experiencing the forgiveness, the mercy, the grace. Wait a minute, I thought grace didn't come till the New Testament. Oh no. God is immutable. One of the characteristics of God, immutability means he does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, forever. He was a God of grace then, just like he's a God of grace now. The, the sacrifices that they offered, did they really take away their sin? No, they pointed to a future sacrifice by Jesus Christ. God imputed unto them righteousness. He gave them grace. He gave them grace and mercy. This is what he's talking about. Your anger is turned away from me. Behold, God is my salvation. Any idea what Hebrew word that is? Yeshua. The Greek form of Yeshua is Jesus. God is my salvation. God is my salvation. This is what he's crying out. And I believe as he's considering the the word that the Lord had given him, he's seeing, he's understanding the Mashiach, the Messiah. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yah, the Lord, is my strength and my song, and he also has become my salvation. Did you hear what he said? Yah, the Lord. By the way, that's capital L-O-R-D. The Tetragrammaton, the, the Yahweh, the Y-H-V-H, the exacting, very precise name of God. So Yah, the Lord, is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Who was his salvation? Yahweh, God. God is his salvation. When we study the scriptures and we see Jesus Christ being the only name by which anyone can be saved, is he talking about a different person? He's not talking about a different person. He's talking about the same person. God the Son, Jesus Christ, Lord God Almighty. Therefore, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. With joy you will draw the living water. That reminds us of John 4, 4, John chapter 7. You you go over and over again in the scriptures where Jesus, remember John 4 when he came to Samaria and he met the woman at the well and he offered her living water? This is, God is salvation. Remember, what did his name mean? What did Jesus mean? Yehoshua, Yehoshua, Joshua, God is my salvation. And there he, what was his name going to be called according to Isaiah 7, 14? You will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. So we see the fulfillment of it taking place. Verse 4. And in that day you will say, praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his deeds among the people, make mention that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout. O inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. Great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. Isaiah is going to go on as we get a little further, maybe next week or the week after when we get to chapter 53. We're going to see... (laughs) You don't think I'll get that far? No. Eventually we will get there. 
In Isaiah chapter 53, we're going to see Jesus Christ as a suffering servant. We're going to see Jesus Christ in their midst yet rejected. We're going to look at the the book of, of Hosea, which says, God said, I will return. I will return until the nation acknowledges their sin. Well, how did God return? The scripture seems to indicate that God returns to heaven until such a time as the nation acknowledges her sin. What was her sin? The, the rejection of Jesus Christ. And so, that's what's going to take place toward the end of the tribulation period. And the nation, once again, is going to recognize her Messiah. And Jesus will return uh, to rescue. So, all this we see in this psalm, the song uh, that Isaiah writes. Now, chapter 13. We're going to turn our focus now, change focus from Israel, Judah, and we're going to look at Babylon. Now, we're only going to finish chapter 13 if we finish chapter 13. We're not going to finish 14, but I think it's a good idea if you get an opportunity this week to read Jeremiah chapter 50, Jeremiah chapter 51, Revelation chapter 17, Revelation chapter 18, and Isaiah 13 and 14. Why? Because all of those chapters deal with the destruction of Babylon. Isaiah is talking about the destruction of Babylon. He's talking about a nation that doesn't exist at the time he writes this. And I don't believe he's talking about the nation that was conquered in whatever it was, 539 B.C., when the Medo-Persian Empire conquered Babylon. When we look at the Scripture, what the Scripture is talking about is the destruction of Babylon. In essence, when we study the Word of God, we're going to see a tale of two cities. God's city, Jerusalem. And the city in opposition to God, Babylon. Remember in Genesis, where did the first rebellion take place? Babylon. Where did they build the Tower of Babel? In Babylon. Where do we see, when we study all the world's religions, in fact, I would encourage you to read Reverend Hislop's book, The Two Babylons, because he can point to every false religion and many of the church traditions that we have within the church, Catholic church, Protestant church today, he can take them all the way back to Babylon where they had their foundation. From Babylon, the the head of the Babylonian um, religion moved to uh, to uh, a town. Gosh, I wish I could remember. It's one of the seven letters. Pergamos moved to Pergamos, set up his his foundation in Pergamos. You know what his title was? Pontifex Maximus. Interesting, huh? He left from there and went to Rome. Now, Constantine, in about three-something, he legalized Christianity, made it the state religion, waved his magic wand over all the priests and all the traditions that were in the pagan church, and they all came in to the regular church. Uh, And it wasn't just Constantine. There's some other emperors around that, but this is the short version. We don't have time for a long version. So, when we take a look at it, when we see it, we want to recognize... We want to know where Easter, why Easter has bunnies and eggs? Babylon. In the, in the worship of Ishtar. 
We want to know why we have a Christmas tree? Babylon. We want to understand the tradition of a Yule log? Babylon. It all goes back to Babylon. Plus, all these other world religions. And as Hislop does his study in two Babylons, he kind of brings out this concept. So when we look in Scripture and we see, we have to recognize that when the Lord talks about Babylon, he can be talking about an actual, the location Babylon. I'm not saying he's not. But more than the location of Babylon, he is speaking about the outright rebellion of mankind against God. That is at the root of what Babylon means. What Babylon is talking about. Now, I find it kind of interesting, if we run down this rabbit trail, uh, Isaiah 13 and 14 are going to talk about the destruction the same way Revelation 17 and 18 are going to talk about the destruction the same way Jeremiah 50 and 51 are going to talk about this destruction. So when we look at it, it's possible perhaps somewhere down the line there's going to be this public outpouring after the destruction and and all that we've seen taking place in Iraq that the world may come together, the UN may come together and say we're going to build a peaceful city, we're going to go back in and, and finish what Saddam Hussein began in rebuilding Babylon. Perhaps Babylon becomes a, a, a center area that one day will be the place where Antichrist will rule from. I don't know. But I know when I read the scripture and it talks about Babylon, what I'm focused on is that rebellion against God. That's the mark of Babylon, what Babylon is all about. So this is a burden against Babylon. And again, this is 100 years before Babylon existed. This is a burden against Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Lift up a banner on the high mountain. Raise your voice to them. Wave your hand that they may enter the gates of the nobles. For I have commanded my sanctified ones, and I have also called my mighty ones for my anger, those who rejoice in my exaltation. So God is speaking, and what he says is, serious judgment is about to come. I have called my sanctified ones, those who are set apart. I don't know who they are. But I know what damage one angel can do, so it's, it's, a, it's a scary thought anyway. My mighty ones, who are those? Who, which parts, what parts of the heavenly arm, uh, uh, army is he talking about? The, the heavenly hosts. We don't know, but he is calling them together for what? For my anger. God's pouring out a judgment, justice, on that city which represents man's rebellion. Well, let's look. The noise of the multitude in the mountains, like that of many people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdom of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts musters the army for battle. They come from a far country, from the end of heaven. The Lord and his weapons of indignation to destroy the whole land. Folks, a lot of people read this and they say it was fulfilled in whatever it is, 539 or 593. I'm dyslexic sometimes. I can't remember numbers. But when the Medo-Persian Empire conquered Babylon, but you hear what he said. He's not talking about them being conquered. He's talking about them being obliterated. That the nation does not exist. That no one will ever live there again. 
And today we know that, that at least at one time, Saddam Hussein was rebuilding the city. And that parts of the city had had uh, people that were inhabiting them. And the Bible says when this destruction comes, nobody ever going to live there again. Revelation brings out that same concept, that same point. They will destroy the whole land. Verse 6, wail for the day of the Lord is at hand. And when we read the day of the Lord, we know what we're talking about, right? The day of the Lord is the worst part, the heaviest part of the tribulation period. Tribulation period, according to Daniel chapter 9, is the 70th week, seven years. The day of the Lord, the, the fullness of God's judgment comes the second half, the second three and a half years period of time. So wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp. Every man's heart will melt. Doesn't this sound familiar? And they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrow will take hold of them. They will be in chain, as, or they will be in chains. Blah, 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 blah. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. And the language, the idioms, the pictures that Isaiah is painting are the same as what you're going to read in Revelation 17 and 18 and Jeremiah 50 and 51. And if you take the time to roll back to Matthew chapter 24, you're going to recognize some of those same idioms, some of those same pictures, some of those same symbols. The phraseology is going to be the same as we take a look. So what's he talking about? Hey, here comes this judgment. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, verse 9, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. So, do you see that this is more than just when the Medo-Persian Empire conquered Babylon? I mean, God is talking about a, a huge judgment. And again, if you read Revelation 17 and 18, you see the same thing. The same thing as Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And we see their outright destruction. And one day, she's going to be destroyed. No one's ever going to live there again. No one's ever going to be a part of it again. This judgment of the city in rebellion against God, known as Babylon. Well, he goes on. Look at verse 11. For I will punish who? The world for its evil. I will punish the world for its evil. We're looking at more, bigger picture than just this location where ancient Babylon sat. There's a punishment upon the world. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. What is it that the tribulation period marks? The judgment from God on a Christ-rejecting world. God's judgment on mankind who refuses to accept the punishment for sin that Christ bore for us. And so the Lord is going to shake everything that can be shaken with the desire that when man is falling, when man is failing, he'll cry out to God and be saved. But what is that phrase we read over and over again in Revelation? 
And still they would not repent. Still they would not repent. Man in rebellion against God is going to stay in his rebellious state all the way to the end. But God is going to give him that seven-year period of time as opportunity to call out upon his name. Well, here we see it. He's going to pour out his judgment upon the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. There's no question about the world being evil, right? Yeah, you know, I forget where, the, where I heard the story from, but uh, a man and a woman got on a plane with their little baby and everything seemed pretty cool, but the stewardess was noticing there was something weird about the child and so they radioed ahead and when they landed... They, uh, the police were waiting and they took the mom and the dad. The baby was dead and they had used the baby as a mule to carry heroin inside of her body. So if you have to wonder about whether or not the world's getting better, I don't think it is. I think we're in the downward spiral of Romans 1, 2, and 3 and we're going to continue in that downward spiral until the Lord calls us home. Look what he says next in verse 11. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Now, I would take that as a direct representation of what God would say to our nation should he be able to say it. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. The sin of Sodom and her sister Gomorrah, you remember what it was? They were proud, fullness of food, idleness of time, and they did not strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And so the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And we see here, we look at our own nation, we can see ourselves in that same place. We can see ourselves conducting business as usual. But the Lord said, He will. I will halt the arrogance of the proud, lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold and a man more than the golden wedge of Ophir. I will make a mortal more rare. What's the world's population? Does anybody know on the calendar on the internet? Is it like, it was like 5 billion. Are we over that? Are we 6 billion now? It keeps going up. So if I don't look at it for a while, I lose track. The point is, when we look at the judgments that take place during the tribulation period, you're going to see over half of the population utterly removed from the face of the earth before we reach the halfway point. So if we're at 5 billion, that's 2.5 billion people gone. When he says, I will make mortal more rare, there's going to be so much death and destruction that comes. Now listen, this is what I call fair warning. When the flood was coming, what did Noah do for 120 years? He preached that the flood was coming. What's the church been preaching for 2,000 years? Jesus Christ is going to come back. There is going to be judgment. You need to make a decision where you stand. Do you stand with the Lord or do you stand against the Lord? Choose this day who you will serve. Just because judgment hasn't come, it doesn't mean judgment's not coming. And so, the Lord is going to bring that day. He will make a mortal more rare than fine gold. 
In verse 13, therefore I will shake the heavens and the earth will move out of her place. Now this is kind of interesting. If you want to do a, 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 I don't know, you want to call it a study, a study on this, this has in some way or another happened before. That the earth twisted on her axis. I mean, every, every scientist says something occurred, something happened. Do you know, until 701 B.C., every calendar made by mankind, and I'm talking about men that were actually smarter than us, whose empires are gone, one of which would be the Empire of Babylon, the Mayan Empire, the, the Aztecs, the Egyptians, all these ancient empires, around the same time, all their calendars went out of whack. Prior to that time, every calendar had 360 days in a year. And then at 701 B.C., all the calendars changed. And ultimately, we find ourselves in a 365 and some odd time left over days in a year. With a leap year every four years. When we discovered the error in the calendar, we went from March or from April 4th to the 14th. They just erased 10 days so that we could catch up. 1700s well when we look at this something took place how do you account for some of the events now some people want to point to 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 a variety of things possible a variety of different things that contributed to that you know we could point back as far to the flood if we wanted to that things obviously took place in that uh, cataclysmic judgment that took place well when we look at it what we know is it changed Prior to that time, you know why there's 360 degrees in a circle? Because there was 360 days in a year. There were 12 30-day months. Doesn't it make sense? Now we got all kind of craziness. I have to count on my knuckles and fingers to figure out if there's 31 or, or 28 or what the deal is. So at one time, the calendars, all the calendars of the world were that place. Well, it says that the whole earth is going to move out of its place. Folks, I can point to this. Sure I can. We hold our finger here and we go to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. We've come to the, to the final seal. The final seal and the judgment during the tribulation period. Verse 12 of chapter 6. I looked and when he opened the sixth seal, and behold there was a great earthquake... And the sun became black, the sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to earth. The fig tree dropped its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. And the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Careful study of the Greek indicates that every means all of them. We're, what we're looking at is a global earthquake. And the people on earth will cry out to hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Pouring out of the wrath of God upon a Christ-rejecting world. So, there's going to be this place when the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of His fierce anger. That's what he's talking about. That's the event that it points to. And it will be as the hunted gazelle and as the sheep that no man takes up. Every person will turn to his own people 
and everyone will flee to his own land. Everyone who is found will be thrust through, and everyone who is captured will fall by the sword. Their children also will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered, and their wives ravished. He's talking about the events. You're going to see the worst period of world history in that final seven years. And the second three and a half years will be worse than the first. It's a horrible time period. Why does the Lord tell us? Why does he lay out the events that are going to take place? I think for us as believers to put on our heart a a burden, a desire that we would share our faith so that no one has to be there apart from choosing it for themselves. Apart from saying, oh, I don't care. I'm going to do things my way. I did it my way. You know, there are people who are going to be singing that. They won't sing it for very long, but they will. When that day, the judgment of the Lord comes. Look what he said in verse 17. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them who will not regard silver. And as for gold, they will not delight in it. Now, the Medes, most people will look at verse 17 and they'll say, well, yeah, that's what he's talking about. 539 B.C., the Medes conquered Babylon. So see if this seems to, to, to point to that particular event. First thing he said is they won't do it for gold or silver. They won't care about gold or silver. I find it interesting that the descendants of the Medes today are the Kurds. Have you heard of them? Yeah, the Kurds are constantly locked in the, the, this battle between uh, Iran and Iraq. And uh, when that day happens, the Bible says... The Medes, they're not going to care about silver or gold. They're just going to want to go wipe them out. That will be in their heart. Well, is he talking about the Medo-Persian Empire, the Kurds of today? Listen, also their bows will dash the young men to pieces. I found this interesting. In the Hebrew, the Hebrew word used for bows doesn't really mean bows. It, it's, in its literal sense, it means launchers. So it could be anything that launched anything. In the King James, they took it and, and translated it bows. That, that made more sense to them. I think to me, saying that the, their launchers will dash people into pieces makes more sense to me than bows. Because in the world we live in today, we can see that, that with the modern warfare that's available, that, that's not a stretch. And their launchers will dash the young men to pieces. They will have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eye will not spare the children. We've seen that anyways in the battles in the, between the Kurds and the Iraqis. You see it anyway. They used to test their gas, mustard gas, on the Kurds. they just drop it on them. They didn't care who was there or what was going on. they wipe them out. He goes on and says, In Babylon, the glory of kingdoms... You catch that. Not the glory of the Babylonian kingdom, but kingdoms plural. How many kingdoms made their their main city Babylon? Well, at least two. The Babylonians did it, and Alexander the Great did it. Alexander the Great made Babylon the, the chief city in his kingdom when he conquered the world which, by the way, took place after 539 B.C. 
And people were still living in Babylon. Let's go on and, and we continue. Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, have you seen Sodom and Gomorrah? I haven't seen Sodom and Gomorrah. Do we even know where Sodom and Gomorrah is? We got a loose idea that maybe it's in the bottom of the Dead Sea somewhere. Somewhere in that general vicinity. Does anybody live there? Is anybody a part of that? The Lord said that Babylon will be like Sodom and Gomorrah. You can go to Babylon today. Seems to indicate that there is another judgment in view rather than just the historical judgment that we see. Well, we go on. Verse 20, it will never be inhabited, nor will it be settled from generation to generation, nor will the Arabian pitch tents there, nor will the shepherds make their sheepfolds there. And that can't be said for today. Arabians pitched their tents there. In fact, when they were excavating some of the finds in Babylon, they had no problem finding Arabian help because the Bedouin tents were pitched all around the city. But the Bible says nobody's going to be there in that day. Now let's move forward into modern times. What happens if, when the book of Revelation talks about Babylon, uh, Babylon being destroyed in one day, what happens if somehow there's some type of judgment from God, some type of a <clears throat> nuclear explosion, poof, the city's gone. Who's ever going to live there? Nobody. Who's going to go? Nobody. Is there going to be animals running around? Nope. Nothing. Gone. Parking lot. Finished. Kaput. That seems to be the type of judgment that God's talking about here. Now, I'm not saying it has to be an atomic bomb. Certainly it doesn't. God did the same thing in Sodom and Gomorrah. Nobody knows where that is today. When God destroys and says, this will be destroyed, it's gone. Period. He goes on. Verse 21, the wild beasts of the desert will lie there. Their houses will be full of owls. Ostriches will dwell there. Wild goats will caper there. Hyenas will howl in the citadels. Jackals in the pleasant palaces. Her time is near to come, and her days will not be prolonged. When we look at that, and we look at it in light of Jeremiah 50 and 51, chapter 14, which will get more into next time we'll probably only do chapter 14 a week after next next week we have our uh, business meeting sunday night but we'll we'll only get through chapter 14 because we're also going to be introduced chapter 14 to one of only three angels that are named in the scriptures you know the three angels gabriel michael lucifer Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28 both detail the fall of Lucifer. So we'll take a look at that when we take a look at God's continued focus on Babylon. And again, it emphasizes the concept that I'm trying to to put out to you, that the city of Babylon represents mankind in rebellion against God. Whether it will be actual Babylon or a different city, people smarter smarter than me have said it's Las Vegas, it's New York, it's Dubai, it's, you know, whatever. The reality is it's going to end up being the foundation of the, the, the Antichrist kingdom. People point to Rome. 
Certainly, Scripture seems to indicate that Rome will, will end up being the center of the one world religion. But as of that, that commercial and religious center of Babylon, when the Scripture talks about it, and it's, it's talking about the outright rebellion of man, as we get into about the middle of chapter 14, all of a sudden, instead of focusing on Babylon, he's going to turn to Satan. Isn't that interesting? He's going to talk about what Satan was like before the fall, what happened when he fell, and the things that, that occurred as a result, and what did he bring with his fall? Rebellion. Rebellion's been a part of it ever since. So we'll get to that next week. Um, why don't you stand with me and we'll go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank you that we can come together. Lord, we thank you for this time that we can spend before you. Lord, we ask, God, as we, uh, as we spend this time studying your word and pouring over it, Lord God, that our desire is... Not that we have every answer, but that our desire is we would seek to answer the questions that we have. Lord, that we would have, have a hunger for your word, a thirst for knowledge and understanding, and being able to grasp the word that, uh, that you lay out before us. Father, we pray, God, that you would help us to see the truth of your word, Lord God, as we just desire to focus totally and completely on you. Lord, we lay this time before you and ask your blessing. We pray that you would anoint uh, our time of worship, Father, as we seek your face. Lord God, we, uh, we just come before you to honor you in this place, in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Sunday night.